This is The Guardian. Tuesday night's massive explosion at a hospital in Gaza has shocked the world. Pictures from Gaza last night showed scenes of utter chaos. Bloodied, wounded casualties from the partially destroyed Al-Ali Arab hospital. While it's still unclear who's responsible, could this be a tipping point in a bitter conflict between Israel and Hamas? I've made wartime decisions. I know the choices are never clear or easy for leadership. There's always cost. It requires clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. I'm Gabby Hinsliff, in for John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. We're recording this episode on Wednesday afternoon, hours after that disputed blast at the Al-Akhli Hospital in Gaza. We'll shortly be speaking to the former Middle East Minister Alistair Burt and to The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland about the broader picture in the Middle East. But first, we wanted to talk about what's happening on the ground in Gaza. Earlier, I spoke to Helen Ottens-Patterson, Médecins Sans Frontières, medical referent for the occupied Palestinian territories, previously head of mission in Gaza. She was due to return there this week, but can't currently get into the country because its borders are closed. I should warn you that some of what you are about to hear, you may find distressing. Hello, Helen. Hello. What happened last night at Al-Akhli Hospital is, is surely everyone's worst fear, really. What are you hearing from colleagues on the ground in Gaza now? Yeah, we're hearing that this was um, a profoundly shocking event. Um, it seems to be, you know, almost becoming a watershed moment, hopefully, in, in this awful catastrophe that we're seeing unfolding. Um, we had medical staff on the ground who directly witnessed um, a huge uh, explosion. Um, they saw the bodies of, you know, many, many people, women, children, uh, men, healthcare workers who'd been killed. Uh, and yeah, the descriptions were absolutely um sickening, you know, body parts everywhere, uh, absolute chaos, as you can imagine. In terms of figures, it seems to be not clear yet because, of course, it's chaotic, but something like uh, three to 500 people killed and hundreds um, of people injured. Are all of your, your colleagues safe and accounted for? I don't think we can consider that anybody is safe at the moment in Gaza. <sighs> it's a profoundly dangerous situation with no safe, safe spaces for anybody. And uh, we've been seeing a lot of attacks on... Um, the health system and health workers in general. So this attack on a hospital, you know, it doesn't come in a vacuum. Um, we've already seen tens, if not hundreds, of healthcare workers killed, injured, ambulances targeted, and hospitals also damaged by bombardments. And beyond, I mean, even obviously before this particular event, food, water, fuel, medical supplies to Gaza were all cut off, power cut off. Can you describe what it's like trying to, to work, to live in those circumstances. I mean, the, the healthcare you can provide must be incredibly constrained. You know, the fortitude of the Palestinian medical staff is absolutely um, amazing. Uh, they're all working in the most harrowing of circumstances, you know, putting their own personal concerns about their families aside. Some of the colleagues that I've spoken to are now drinking contaminated water, so they no longer have access to clean water. I've heard also that, you know, getting food, bread, but even even something as basic as bread is becoming almost impossible. Gaza had a contingency of around one month's supply of food, but in the circumstances of heavy bombardment on buildings, uh, lack of access via roads, I think, you know, this contingency would last for a couple of weeks. Um, it's, you know, it's not really 
reflecting the situation. This is unprecedented. I think nobody could have prepared for this. So uh, I, I, to be honest, I, I really don't know how they're managing. Um, mm. People are telling me that they've got one day's worth of water left. Um, they don't know where they're going to get their next food from. So yes, it's uh, really li- living out our hand-to-mouth. Yeah, that's right. And is it the case that some surgeons are now having to operate without painkillers? So I've heard that from colleagues, uh, yes, because they've run out of anaesthetic uh, drugs. Yeah. Which is medieval conditions. Yeah. It's absolutely medieval, yeah. If the generators run out of fuel, can hospitals even remain open in any meaningful sense? I mean, without without power, without electricity to run even the most basic machinery, without lights. You know, the, the healthcare workers will keep working regardless of the conditions, but... Uh, you know, a hospital needs fuel to run, you know, things like ventilators and, and oxygen and basic things, uh, even the lighting. So uh, I know very well that the Palestinian healthcare workers will, will you know, keep working, keep supporting their patients. But uh, quality of care left the building days ago. Um, so, yes, it's very, very dire. The Israelis told 1.1 million odd people living in the north of Gaza to move for their own safety ahead of a, a possible ground invasion. Do you have any understanding of how many civilians might still be left in the north and what the situation is for those who've had to move south in large numbers very suddenly? It's really difficult to get figures. The last I heard, but again, I can't verify this, was that um, about six to 700,000 had moved from the north to the south. Some of our staff are refusing to move. You know, they want to remain uh, with their dignity. Some staff can't move because that, you know, there's still heavy bombardment in the north. It's not able to, you know, not easy to access roads to travel. And it's also dangerous, of course, because the bombardments continue indiscriminately. In the South, the situation is awful. There are no safe places. So the idea that this is a safe place to flee, where you'll be protected, is is absolutely not correct. And, you know, we see every hour that there are bombardments ongoing. So yeah, people are, you know, moving around to try and get food and water, but they're doing so at their own risk. And, you know, no structure, whether it's a civilian house, medical structure, um, school, university is, is safe. You've obviously got large numbers of people bombed out of their own homes, crammed into overcrowded houses out south without much access to clean water, potentially bodies lying unburied. Are you concerned to, beyond injuries from shelling, are you concerned about outbreaks of infectious diseases, cholera, typhoid, the kind of thing we tend to see in those conditions? Absolutely. I mean, we've got people crowded, you know, um, 40,000 people in a hospital compound, for example, with no sanitation. All of the hospitals are now serving as, as camps for displaced people. And they're not, you know, they're not set up for this, of course, even if there was access to normal water, etc. Uh, so absolutely, we're really worried about things like diarrheal disease and uh, outbreaks of uh, communicable diseases. You have been, I think, head of mission to Gaza for five years prior to this. That's right, yeah. You must have seen many hard times in Gaza. Is what you're seeing now comparable to anything you have experienced in the past or anything, any conditions that MSF has had to work in around the world? We usually don't like to compare, um, you know, human suffering, but I think in this case, I have to say that this is, in terms of Gaza, absolutely beyond the pale, uh, unprecedented, you know, on on every level. Um, I've been there through different conflicts and escalations. Um, I was there during the the conflict in May 2021, which went on for 11 days. But this, you know, this is um, so distressing, so painful uh, for us, for our colleagues. They literally feel that they're going to be exterminated. What does Médecins Sans Frontières want to see happen now? We know the aid lorries are queuing up on the Egyptian side of the border. What do you want to see to enable humanitarian aid to flow through? 
we need to see a stop to the indiscriminate violence. We need to ensure safe places for people, and we need to ensure access to fuel, food, water, humanitarian aid, and medical uh, medical care. We also feel that this is a forced displacement. People are not moving um, of their own free will, and the conditions to which they're you know forced to move to are you know inconsistent with you with human life and becoming. Uh, you know, more and more challenging in that respect. Do you feel, I mean, NGOs have been making this case for a week now, for a ceasefire, for humanitarian corridors. For Do you feel as if people are, are listening to what you're asking? Or do you feel as if you're being ignored? It feels very much like uh, we're being ignored. I mean, there is, there is of course, a lot of outrage uh, in some quarters. But I think in terms of the international community and the response of the international community, People seem to be either turning away, refusing not to listen. I know that the people of Gaza, the colleagues that I'm in touch with, uh, they feel dispossessed from the international community. They feel rejected and they feel almost despised by the international community. And this is something which is be uh, beyond, I can't comprehend uh, why we're not able to stop this as an international community with, with some level of humanity that we supposedly uh, you know, purport to have. Thank you very much, Helen. I know your time is really valuable today, so we're going to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us and best of luck. Thanks. I'm now joined by the Guardian columnist and Politics Weekly America host, Jonathan Friedland, and by the former Middle East Minister and Conservative MP, Alistair Burt. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hello, Gabby. Alistair, you spent many years working on and in the Middle East. You'll know all of the big players in this process. This must have felt quite close to home for you over the last week watching these fairly horrendous events unfold. I made my first visit to Israel and Palestine as a member of parliament 40 years ago in 1983. I have intermittently watched it since then with a series of visits as MP and then of course five years as Minister for the Middle East between 2010 and 2019 on and off. And this is as uh, gloomy and as depressing and sad as I can recall. And um, it's uh, it, it does get close to home because, of course, I know people in many parts of Israel, the West Bank and in Gaza, and it's very rough. Johnny, you've written and spoken very movingly over the last week about the impact of the Hamas attack on both Israelis and Jews here in Britain, your fears for what might come next it's it's been a raw week how are you feeling right now well i think alistair probably captured it very well about feeling gloomy and depressed i mean honestly the closest thing i can compare it to just as an experience has been uh, bereavement there is that feeling where you wake up in the morning and there's a sort of half beat where you don't remember and then you remember it again that this has happened and this is that's the last time i felt that was when i lost members of my own family and that's what it's been like each week I'm you know sleeping badly and you know waking up with this start of remembering this terrible thing is happening and it's partly because you know like as you mentioned you know I think Jewish people have a, a very affected by this we're connected to we have family members so there's some of that for me and friends of friends and all that and then it is just this sense of foreboding that of where this will lead and you know you can't help but be alarmed you know I'm a governor of a local Jewish school and I'm getting emails every day about security and about you know the threats to the kids and it's just a horrible horrible period and it's underwritten by a sense of what could have been 
because over so many years and in so many ways, many people have seen a way out, have seen an answer to the issue, but always, always it's not quite the right time or something goes wrong and it can all be managed. And you have this terrible feeling that what we're experiencing now, it could have been different, but that we have to put onto one side and deal with what we have now. It's a powerful sense, isn't it, of missed missed opportunities. But first, um, I want to bring us back to that hospital attack. In the immediate aftermath of the explosion at Al-Akhli Hospital, Hamas claimed it was the result of an Israeli airstrike, a claim that was initially reported by the BBC, by other news organisations, by NGOs. And uh, very shortly after that, uh, the Israel Defence Force denied that it was responsible. It has subsequently said that having conducted uh, an investigation, the culprit was a rocket fired from within Gaza by the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group, a group affiliated to Hamas, which fell short of its intended target in Israel and hit the hospital. The UK government's position is that it's still trying to establish exactly what happened. Alistair, can you tell us a bit about that process of verification, what the FCO number 10 will be trying to do now? Are we ever going to be entirely sure what happened? It it depends who is able to get to the scene, who they are and what they're able still to see. In almost any conflict where uh, there are civilian casualties and a sufficient fog uh, surrounding it, I'm thinking of Yemen, um, you get incidents uh, which are claimed by one side to be caused by the other, and an investigation suggests there may be a different outcome. Uh, You need forensics, you need to be able to look uh, at the site, you need to be able to look at uh, the surrounding area and all that, Uh, and it's got to be as independent as possible. In the circumstances of Gaza at present, I think that will be extremely difficult. Uh, One suspects, firstly, it'll be quite difficult to verify, although, in my view, having seen what I've seen, I think the onus is now on uh, Islamic Jihad and other forces to explain uh, what their answer is to the claims that the IDF have been able to uh, to make. But the other side of it is it's the consequences and to that extent um, whoever did it, the consequences are as they are. And we live in a world where it doesn't matter what quotes, facts, quotes are presented to people, they'll believe what they want. Tuesday night was really kind of a rock bottom moment when word came out of this. I mean, just the idea of a hospital where people are fleeing and you grieve for those people killed. And then immediately we're propelled into this information war, which is what we're now in. This is that this is obviously a shooting war and and a and a you know brutal, vicious kind of war. Started with that with that massacre in southern Israel and then now just so many people dying but it is also an information war and i i just think the i mean as i was saying what you know ideally an investigation would involve on the ground forensics and so on but there is now a whole lot of other work that can be done with open source intelligence and the strange thing was that in the end actually i think those people who are neither on neither side aren't combatants but instead analyze overhead imagery uh, photographs and assess sort of, uh, inter, you know, listening to intercepts and other open source information. Um, they seem to have pieced together a more likely account of what has happened. And I think this has really got to be a lesson, a very important lesson for the media, our industry, Gabby, that, um, that, that you can, you have to apply skepticism absolutely to both sides. And because the implicate, the consequences are real in the real world. So in this case, um, 
you know, immediately they went with this account that it was, uh, that Israel had done it, which came from what we're told is, you know, the Gaza Health Ministry, which sounds like an, an institution of state. You think, you know, if you're British, you think of the NHS when you hear health ministry. Obviously, it's Hamas. They run the strip and they're in charge. Then you have a contrary account from Israel, the IDF. Well, the trouble is Israel has given accounts of things that have later turned out not to be true. So newsrooms really have to go for, um, uh, you know, uh, such restraint. They need to be able to say, this has happened. We don't know yet who caused it. And no one likes that. Um, but that the, if you don't do that, there are real world consequences. And I think we've just seen them play out over this these gruesome last few hours. I was struck as well by how much information the Israelis were prepared to put in the public domain, including what they said was an intercept of a conversation between um, Islamic Jihad members in um, Gaza. You know, we've seen an unusual amount of, of information put out there to prove their case. I was clearly listening um, to the IDF spokesman, Peter Lerner, on uh, quite a bad-tempered interview with the BBC. You are willing to accept at face value what a terrorist organisation that butchers babies in their bedrooms as fact. I don't and think we have a done that. Military that brings a whole series of facts that are actually based on intelligence, on operational data, and knowledge. Clearly anger in Tel Aviv, Johnny, that equal weight was given to their claims and to Hamas's claims, you know, that the Israelis clearly feel that they should be believed above uh, prescribed terrorist organisations. Yes, I mean, this is a really fascinating disconnect of how it's seen in Israel and seen outside. As far as Israel are concerned, Hamas with those attacks on the 7th of October confirmed themselves as an ISIS-type organisation who were able to commit blood-curdling acts of uh, of brutality and cruelty, sadism. Uh, they are therefore applying in their own mind the kind of ISIS template where they think nobody would have said during when, you know, when in the era of Islamic State, you know, a building's been struck through 500 civilians dead, says Islamic State. No one listened to them. They didn't have spokesmen on the Today programme, whereas Hamas did this morning. Um, they Israelis think, why are you not treating Hamas like ISIS, where their word doesn't count for anything because you know they cut people's heads off? I think the bad-tempered interview is partly coming out of that disbelief, that incredulity on the Israeli side, which is why you fellow Western countries, as they see it, not ostracizing and shunning Hamas the way you did with ISIS. And this media row is in a way symptomatic of a larger one, which is they think they should have the same free hand to eradicate Hamas as a fighting force that the US and UK gave themselves when taking on uh, ISIS and Islamic State. So it's in this context, um, obviously, that the US President Joe Biden landed in Israel on Wednesday morning um, and essentially said he believed Israel's version of events. Let's just listen to what he said. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But there's a lot of people out there who are not sure. But Rishi Sunak, speaking in the House of Commons on Wednesday, was significantly less categorical. Let's just hear what he had to say. We should not rush to judgment before we have all the facts on this awful situation. Every member will know that the words we say here have an impact beyond this house. Yeah. This morning, I met with the National Security Advisor, but also the chair of the Joint Intelligence Committee. I could tell the honourable gentleman our intelligence services have been rapidly analysing the evidence to independently establish the facts. Uh, we are not in a position at this point to say more than that, but I can tell him we are working at pace. But also, 
cooperating and collaborating with our allies on this issue as we look to get to the bottom of the situation and we will also continue all our efforts to get humanitarian aid into the region. The UK position seems um, significantly more cautious than Washington's, Alistair. Is that, is that significant? Is it, does the US know something we don't or is this a difference of approach? We should be cautious um, and as we're going to have to reserve judgment on further incidents in the future, uh, I think Rishi Sunak lays down a pattern of wanting to see the evidence before he says something. He might need that little pause for uh, for space in time to come. Uh, Joe Biden has, has clearly made up his mind and there's plenty of other information emerging now. US intelligence says they believe that Israel was not responsible for the attack. So maybe the United Kingdom can go further uh, when they feel they're, they're more secure in relation to do it. But I think for the time being, I don't think it suggests a serious difference of view. But if heads of state are anxious not to rush to judgment, I mean, you've already both mentioned protests around the world. We've seen in Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and of course, on the West Bank, planned talks between Biden and regional leaders in Jordan were scrapped after uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the leader of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, um, backed out. Can you describe the sort of conflicting pressures there will be on Arab heads of state at this point, Alistair, what they're likely to want? Because it feels until now as if everyone has been aiming to de-escalate this situation. Yeah, um, this uh, this awful attack by Hamas came at, at a time when a new Middle East was just about on the horizon. Uh, Jake Sullivan had now infamously said the region was quieter than, than he could remember for a, for a couple of decades. In a sense, the moment that thought strikes you, another part of your brain should be ringing with alarm bells. Why am I saying this? What is it I'm missing? What haven't I seen? Because all our experience of the Middle East is that it's never quiet. And if it is, something's going on somewhere. The terrible thing to add to the, the, the misery of what has already happened is that there were signs of something different. States in the region feel they can make their own foreign policy now. They're not quite sure where the United States is. That, of course, is to some degree being reversed by what has happened. But the Iranians talked to the UAE. The Saudis reached out to the Iranians. People recognizing that descaling something which could cost them everything was really in their own interests. Then you have the Abrahamic Accords, you have Saudis talking to Israel about a possible new economic future. All this was going on uh, at a time when you could consider there's something, uh, some new opportunity. But always, always in the background was the Palestinian issue. And to many of us who made the point constantly, it, a new Middle East cannot emerge Without this being resolved, I would imagine the, 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 the thoughts going forward, how do we descale? How are we able to give our own populations a sense that something positive can happen f about this for the Palestinian population, as well as moving away from a situation where uh, you know, Israel is suddenly a target in a manner that no one had, pr had anticipated physically being and mustn't be again. So all the balls are up in the air and Arab leaders will be working extremely hard to try and find a way back to that sort of new Middle East they were looking for, but it's going to take some time. Johnny, you're a really close observer of, of relations between Washington and Tel Aviv. What is a successful outcome for Biden from this visit? What do you think the Americans are pushing for while they're here? Well, he had high hopes, I think, before the blast at the hospital. I think he 
was hoping to get Israel to open up uh, and allow aid through. And there has been some progress on that where they've, uh, under very strict conditions, said that aid will be, uh, you know, Egyptian aid will be allowed through the Rafah crossing and they won't stop it. But Israelis saying very firmly it mustn't get through to Hamas. And then I think he would have loved to have gone into uh, to other capitals and brokered to, you know, ideally what he would have wanted to come back as the returning hero would have got some hostages out. There, there were hopes for some unblocking. And the fact that they were all the Arab leaders were ready to meet him in a way was to return to the way the, the politics of the region used to work before the pattern that Alistair was describing when, you know, the US was the central player and the others would um, you know be remove around it, and that was all derailed by the hideous events, tragic events of Tuesday night. So uh, it's a much more sort of contract. His ambition is much lower now, but I think there is this interesting thing going on, which is publicly it's about declaring solidarity uh, with Israel. He absolutely did that, shoulder to shoulder. We're with you. To then say things in private that are much more restrained, and I think between the lines, him. And he and Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, who's been doing, you know, shuttle diplomacy that evokes memories of the 1970s and Henry Kissinger in the Yom Kippur War exactly 50 years ago. Um, he has been, I think there's been a really interesting thing, which is warm words in public, big stick in private, where they're saying, don't do this. Uh, the fact that the ground incursion hasn't happened yet is partly because of this. Uh, and they're putting down I don't, you know, too strong to say don't do this, but do this within limits, international law, humanitarian concerns, uh, and so on. So I, I think he had bigger ambitions, but I don't think he's going to come away with nothing. And one of the most interesting threads, I think, that, that's that's come out of this, you know, question of what the what the US is is arguing for, is suggesting that that the US has been pushing Israel to think about what comes after a ground incursion. What, okay, supposing you can, in some senses, eliminate Hamas. I mean, we might all have our views about how possible that is. But beyond that, what is... So who who governs Gaza? What is the you know plan for after that? Is there a credible alternative Palestinian leadership? Because without that, you know, all you have is the regeneration of Hamas. Do you think that's something that the Israelis are taking... Seriously, Johnny, because there's obviously parallels there with with what happened, you know, post nine eleven that um, the West went into Afghanistan without thinking too hard about what um, was going to replace the regime it was toppling. No, I think there's a real lack of thinking about that in Israel, and it's been true in the whole of the Netanyahu period, which is people would say to him, he's been prime minister for most of the last fifteen years, and people would have meetings with him and say, "What's the plan? What is your? I know tactically how you're getting through next week and next month. What is your plan?" For this people with whom you, you know, are neighbors and share this land one way or another. And there's never been a good answer. Instead, there was this really short-termist tactical answer, which was you keep uh, the Palestinians split, you keep them in a position where they're divided between Fatah in the West Bank and Hamas in the in Gaza. Therefore, they're in no position to force a negotiation about a Palestinian state, and you just keep the lid on it, you contain it. That is not a long-term strategy, and um, the desire to make these side deals, really, with Gulf states and so on, was all a kind of denial of this of the central question, which is there are two peoples claiming the same land, and that question hasn't gone away, and it is, un you know, in in brutal and violent manner, it is back front and centre again. But I don't hear from those people a plan. They don't have one. 
And it was very telling to me that Netanyahu had to expand his war cabinet and reach for people in the opposition as if to say, look, I don't know how to do this. You know, you guys who I've been accusing of being the evil elite deep state and so on, help. He couldn't do it. And of course, he couldn't do the most basic thing, which is protect his own citizens. Okay, let's pause here for a minute. And when we come back, we'll look at how this war might be having an impact in the UK. Mit Asana erhalten Sie Einblicke in sämtliche Arbeitsvorgänge. Sie können Projekte teamübergreifend überwachen und alles von der Priorität über den Status bis hin zum Fortschritt auf einen Blick nachverfolgen. So können Sie und Ihr Team intelligente Entscheidungen schneller treffen. Jetzt kostenlos unter asana.com testen. asana.com Dein Podcast macht kurz Pause. Hate Speech dagegen hört nicht so einfach auf. Wer hat dir überhaupt erlaubt zu reden, Schlampe? Verzieh dich in die Küche, bevor ich herausfinde, wo du wohnst und dir... Dir persönlich Danke sage. Hör nicht auf die Hater. Du machst einen richtig guten Job. Und wir stehen alle hinter dir. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Welcome back. At Prime Minister's Questions on Wednesday, both Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak were in sombre mood. This is Keir Starmer on the situation in Gaza. The lights are going out and the innocent civilians of Gaza are terrified that they will die in the darkness, out of sight. International law must always be followed. Hamas are not the Palestinian people and the Palestinian people are not Hamas. Does he agree that medicines, food, fuel and water must get into Gaza immediately. This is an urgent situation and innocent Palestinians need to know that the world is not just simply watching but acting to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe. I mean, that feels like a different tone to me from, from last week's Keir Starmer and it follows, um, I think, some fairly hefty internal pressure to express more concern for Palestinians, uh, for Palestinians under under bombardment. I think it's a really good thing that we have politicians who are able to see the importance of empathising with both sets of victims. Uh, the world that we've been talking about in the last half hour is full of people who don't see that. Um, uh, a lack of rationality because of the context in which these attacks were set and then the very nature of the, of the attacks themselves for people who've been closely involved, it, it, understandably, vengeance, revenge, all that comes to the fore and you see that throughout social media and you see that in the remarks of some leaders. Um, to have British politicians who understand that it is not wrong or impossible to hold in your mind at the same time an absolute horror and rejection of what Hamas did to people on October the 7th and still believe there is a legitimate political cause for Palestinian justice and an opportunity for, for two states to believe both and therefore to empathise with those who are the victims of, of conflict doesn't seem to me to be wrong. 
but it's really important that we've got politicians able to say so. He did one thing which is really important. He said, Hamas is not the Palestinians, the Palestinians right. are not Hamas. Yeah. And that is, an, it's sort of such an important position. And I think he's trying there to lead his party and say, I, to, to some of those long-time activists, I get why you think you've got to somehow feel sympathetic to Hamas because you're pro-Palestinian. Well, no, you can be pro-Palestinian and actually regard Hamas as what I wrote at the weekend. They're not the Palestinian cause. They are a curse on the Palestinian cause. They bring they bring calamity down upon Palestinians. And I think Keir Starmer is trying to lead people in his own party to that position. I did. Feel, I mean, it did feel very natural to me um, what he was saying at um, Prime Minister's questions. There felt to me that there was a definite wobble or a definite difficult moment last week after initially coming out and saying entirely, as you would expect, you know, condemning the awful, awful um, atrocities in Israel, but then seemingly being unable to say anything about what shape the Israeli response should take, not being able to say in so many words for several days um, that Israel's response should be within the bounds of international law. For a human, former human rights lawyer, felt to me forced. That did not feel to me like a natural position. That felt like something almost that he felt he had to do because the legacy of the Jeremy Corbyn years is so toxic and because he didn't want to leave any room for doubt um, or any cause to say, oh, Labour's you know, kind of slipping back into its old ways. Did you have any concerns about that early response, Johnny? Yes, I did think I did notice it. And I thought I can see what was going on there, which is, I think he was worried. And you're right, it's completely against all his own instincts as a human rights lawyer. But I think he was worried that the headline from such a remark would be Keir Starmer calls on Israel to restrain, uh, to restrain itself, to not go in, etc. He wanted his message to be solidarity. I get that you've suffered this heinous blow. And he didn't want to complicate that message with, but, you know, I'm going to sit here in London telling you how you respond. Week two, different. Then he can do that. But it's looked and sounded um, certainly to some parts of the Labour Party very differently. I mean, you, you said yourself, we've had a handful so far, but but um, a significant handful of Labour councillors in Leicester, Manchester, Oxford, all resigning the party whip in protest. Some Labour MPs um, starting to say that the leadership should be calling for a ceasefire. There is potentially a collision coming, isn't there, between Keir and some parts of the Labour Party, some parts, not just some, you know, elected parts of the Labour Party, but Labour voters, Labour supporters, people who are dismayed at what they're hearing. Yeah. And it's an amazing thing to think, you know, in 2006, it was Israel's second Lebanon war that led to that sort of attempted coup against Tony Blair, where there were Labour people inside his own government, junior ministers and others who said enough's enough. At the time, the proximate cause of that was his refusal to call on Israeli restraint. So Israel was an issue for that Labour leader. We obviously know about, you know, about Jeremy Corbyn and that position about the definition of anti-Semitism, what it could or could not say about Israel. And here's Keir Starmer again. I mean, it's tempting to say that, you know, the Middle East does for Labour leaders what Europe does for Conservative leaders. You know, it can really trip them up and divide them. And I think Keir Starmer, though, is thinking beyond party. He's thinking about the country and he's remembering that one way or another, they had the business about Labour's relationship with Jews really uh, uh, tripped up the Labour Party and contributed to a massive defeat in 2019. And he does not want to go anywhere near there. And so he wants 
it's a very it's become important to him that the Jewish community think he's an ally. And that's why I think he decided on that point about timing. And maybe he overdid it. Maybe he should have been saying the importance of international law even earlier. But I, my sense, and nobody's told me this, I read into his actions a wariness that is born of the experience of Labour between 2015 and 2019. At the beginning of this episode, we heard from Médecins Sans Frontières calling for a pause to allow humanitarian aid. I mean, what do we think the chances are of a ceasefire, even at this stage, even briefly? Uh, it looked as if, as you said, Johnny, it looked as if that was something that had been agreed with Netanyahu before Biden came and then slightly fell apart after he arrived. What do we think the chances are for a ceasefire? Well, ceasefire that lasts, I think there's very, very little chance of that anytime soon because Israel believes it has a very specific military goal, which is to remove um, uh, Hamas's ability to repeat what it did on the 7th of October. So as far as they're concerned, that's the moment when they'll know when to stop uh, and not because of some diplomatic uh, intervention or agreement. You know, their point is something huge happened. This wasn't just another skirmish. Something huge happened. Two and a half thousand Hamas operatives came across their border and entered right into their towns, villages, killed people in their beds. You know, their view is, what did Joe Biden say? 29 11s in terms of the proportion. It's just on a different scale. This is not something which, uh, you know, you can just patch up with a diplomatic agreement and carry on as normal. It changes everything as far as they're concerned, and they won't stop until they've changed it back to a situation they think they can live in. It does change everything. I'm no military strategist, but the, you know, the 100 kilometres, it's rumoured of tunnels under Gaza, uh, all with the capability of hiding people. The military objective of trying to drive out Hamas uh, seems extraordinarily difficult. Uh, people were killed because they were Jews, and we haven't had that for a long time in the world demonstrated in quite such a way. You couldn't live with a situation where people might do that again, and they're not going to. The truth is that Hamas, uh, a bit like ISIS and, and others, they are partly that sort of force, but it's also an ideology, it's also a mindset, and that will be evident elsewhere. And the Hydra is, if it's uh, uh, if it's cut off in Gaza, what happens elsewhere? It's the what next, what next? And almost any pause allows an opportunity to explore what next, what next for Gaza, what next for fighting this ideology. But unless Israel knows that there is no possibility of a similar attack, it cannot assure its people that they are safe and no state uh, would be prepared to accept that situation, neither us nor the United States nor the French nor the Saudis nor anyone else. Thank you very much both. Thank you, Gabby, and thanks, Johnny. Good to be on with you. Yeah, thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Alistair. Goodbye, both of you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to hear more from us, please make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcasts. But before you go, The Guardian has a message for its listeners and its readers. We're open to anyone who wants to read us or listen to us, but we're closed to billionaire owners telling us what to do. We remain proudly independent because of support from our readers and listeners. So if you can, join the millions of others around the world who are keeping it that way. Just visit support.theguardian.com. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby, music by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. Guardian. 